Welcome to Season 2, Episode 4 of Guitar Tales. My name is Dave Cohen. As I say every episode, we are thrilled to be here. This has been a wonderful journey we've taken together. Uh, we are just about at 900 followers on Facebook. If you like the show, uh, do us a little favor and do yourself a favor. Follow us on um, YouTube. It really helps a lot. Subscribe. And my guess is Monica, as I always say, she'll write down here. She will put a little uh, logo that says subscribe. That helps us a lot. Um, follow us on Facebook. We're on Instagram. Um, thanks to Scott, guitar assist Engel, our wonderful publicist extraordinaire. We are now on iTunes, so you could talk to your best friend Siri and say, hey Siri, find us Guitar Tales with Dave Cohen as a podcast and she'll just load it up for you. So it's really wonderful right now. Uh, we're thrilled to have all of you watching the show and listening to the show. So if you have a long car ride, just put on our podcast, because now we're not just on video, we're a podcast. 
and subscribe again. I keep saying that. Subscribe to us because that helps us with YouTube. It will keep the show alive. Uh, special thanks to Riverview Studios. If you have any filming needs at all, check out their website. You will see and watch the other episodes. We have a lot of B-roll, as we call it, of the inside of this beautiful, eclectic studio populated by really talented people. Uh, Riverviewstudios.com is the website. Uh, they've been wonderful to us here at Guitar Tales. We have HD um, filming all the time. We have a great control room back there. The studios are beautiful, and the folks here are immensely talented. And one more time, a special thanks to Scott Guitarmacist Engel, because he's been connecting us with wonderful musicians from the Jersey Shore. And of course, tonight we have a wonderful legendary guitar player from the Jersey Shore, uh, Kenny Dubman. Thank you for joining us tonight. Great to be here. Uh, we're so happy to have you. You and I have been hanging out for about two hours now. I've watched you play guitar. I'm shocked that I'm even allowing a guitar to be in my lap right now because it's one of those I'm not worthy out of Wayne's world, but I'm really not. But I'm happy to have you here. We're all happy to have you here. Good times, man. So, you know, we have to get one thing out of the way before we get into the interview and let you start playing away on that beautiful SG of yours. Uh, we play a game called Six Degrees of John Bon Jovi. How do you get us there? All right. So it's back in the 80s and I'm playing with my band Prophet. Um, we're just about to go do our first record. Uh, I guess it's 1985 and we're playing at what was called Hunka Bunker then. It's now the Starland Ballroom. Where's that? Uh, Sayreville. Okay, okay. Starland. Okay. Um, yeah, so um, our singer at the time, Dean Fasano, was good friends with uh, Richie Sambora. They had a okay. duo together called okay. Message. So. Richie and John came to see us that night, Okay. right? And um, so we did our set. They came back in the dressing room and uh, Richie was with my friend Tracy and John was with uh, Diane Lane at the time. I guess he was, you know, fooling around on his girlfriend or whatever. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and uh, yeah, they said, they said to us, wow, that song with the two acoustics was just, we loved it. What is that? And I said, well, it's called Slow Down. Wow, they just went on and on about how much they loved it. So you actually, it's just, it's not even one degree, it's zero degrees because you hung out with them backstage. Yeah, right? I don't know if you could call it hanging out, but uh, you know, they were there. You were there, that's wild. Yeah, it was pretty wild. Now, speaking of the old days, I was talking to Scott, right? You played at the Fountain Casino? Can you tell me? So we played the Prophet, when Prophet uh, was a cover band, Right. Uh, which it will, was up until 85. Um, right. We played the fountain every Wednesday night. Really? Yeah. So, so the question is... Big when, room. When I was 16 with my fake ID, looking like I was 11, would you have been playing there in like 1981, 1982? Yeah, it was like 82-ish. Uh, 80, 80, yeah. 81, 82, exactly. That's so exactly I've the, probably seen you at the Fountain Casino. You might have, Rabbit. A you very... Might have. <laughs> <laughs> a very famous Matawan, New Jersey venue, right? Yeah, uh, Cliffwood portion of Matawan. Actually, yeah. you know, I did. I lived in that area for a while. Oh, okay. Yeah, Aberdeen. All right. Where do you live in Aberdeen? Uh, Seventeen, the I section. Okay. Uh, I the name of the street, but all the streets are named. Yeah. You know. I was an O section guy. Oh, uh, really? Yeah, yeah. And then there's another famous guitar player at Matawan who is. Uh, I don't know. Steve Conti. Oh. Of course, I yeah. love Steve's a great guy. Yeah, and he I'm plays. Good friend. I'm friends with that whole family. Oh, really? Yeah. And Jennifer. He plays Jennifer with used to cut my hair. Among a million others. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, he's he's an amazing guitar player, great songwriter, great singer, yeah. great talent. Yeah, very talented. Madawan, except for me, is a wellspring of talent. <laughs> Sorry. All right. So here's what I like to do. Uh, I want to uh, really take a deep dive into your background. And, and you're the one, by the way, who talked me into holding your guitar. I've never held a guitar throughout a show, and this is gorgeous. But I want to take a deep dive into you, and we'll talk about gear in a minute. Sure. So how old were you when you start, first started playing guitar? Started playing when I was nine. Oh, wow. uh, I was really drawn to it a couple of years before that because my mom was a hippie. Okay. And she cranked Hendrix and Santana around the really? house. Yeah, I mean, talk about two guys to really like influence a kid. And I was just like, wow, I, I want to do that. So yours, it's interesting. So, you know, my little entree into rock about five years age-wise later than you, and we're the same age roughly, was sort of rebellious with regards to the parents, but you're actually respecting and emulating 
what mom liked. Yeah, I had, an, I, had, I had an enabler in my mom. <laughs> that's right. Should have gone to medical school. Uh, but, but no, but no, but that, that's really cool. So you had true rock and roll playing through your house growing up. Yeah, and it, just to offshoot on that a little bit, um, yeah. at one point, my, my mom is awesome. I mean, she's, she's the best. Um, she packed me and my two brothers, my uh, twin brothers, put us in a station wagon and drove us to Sam Goody at Livingston Mall. Wow. When there's Sam Goody, it was, a it was a record store. Right, right. Walked us in there and found this uh, the sales guy with like long hair and a beard and stuff and said, right. just load us up with all the best stuff. Wow. No idea what was going to happen. So we ended up with UFO, Uriah Heep, Queen, Rush. I mean, stuff at Deep Purple. And wow. we're little kids. And we brought these records home and it was like, it was like starving people sitting down to a buffet, you know, because we had a taste of like rock, but like unwrapping and playing these records on our shitty little, you know, yeah, Juliet yeah. all-in-one turntables. It was like the keys to the kingdom, man. That's I amazing. Mean, it was just, just a stunning revelation like you couldn't believe for a bunch of kids. So your mom is being emotionally generous because she could have pushed on you. I mean, what she's giving you is, ten, you know, just 10 years later than what she enjoyed. So she's enjoying stuff in the mid 60s and she's giving you a sort of late 70s, early 80s stuff. And that's generous because if she were selfish, she'd be pushing the Hendrix and the Beatles. And not that that's anything other than great, but she's giving you sort of the, the half generation later music. Yeah, well, she had no idea what she was giving us by bringing us there and having yeah. the sales guy load us up with all this stuff but i mean like 70s guitar rock man and that's fantastic 70s is still to me the best era of rock it's the best songwriting best songwriting yeah guitar was just in a ferocious like you know kind of a it was still in a birthing mode you know and it's sort of from 60s to 70s the people in the 70s cared about the world, right? But in the 60s, it's all about, you know, it was all about helping the world. And then we jump to the 70s, and it's like, yes, we care about that, but we also care about, you know, the sound of the music we're creating. And the stuff that was going on in the studios, sound-wise, was unbelievable in the 70s. Yeah, I mean, I could, I could go on for two hours about 70s rock, but like 60s to me, um, until you get into a certain point, just had a very jangly high-endy sound like people like the birds and everything is you know production was awful for the most part right and right. then hendrix came along and then the first zeppelin album came along in 68 and that's when right the shit really started hitting the right. fan and that set the tone for 70s guitar rock oh it, it's unbelievable what they did and then you listen like every so often i'll throw on the 70s channel and it's it's it really survives you know it sure does yeah so so you're listening to this music and you're nine and 10 years old, roughly? Well, at that point, I was a little old. We were like 11-ish, okay. my brothers were nine. Um, I had been playing guitar for a couple of years at that point, but never really getting you know, what I wanted. I, you know, I'd hear stuff on the radio, anything that, it, we listen to AM radio. Well, that's, that's what I was going to say. You're listening yeah. to probably uh, ABC, ABC and NBC. Yeah. yeah, so I mean, every time something cool came on, like uh, Alice Cooper School's Out, or Who's That Lady by the Osley Brothers, or, right. or China Grove, yeah. Anything that was like guitar-centric, we were like, yes, that song again. So, yeah, I mean, it was, it was definitely guitar and heavier guitar was the magnet for both myself and both my brothers. Right, because if you look at the six, I mean, at the very end of the 60s, the heavier guitar was starting to kick in, but at the beginning, it, it really wasn't quite as heavy. But at the very end, you've got Jimmy, who's, I guess he's playing Sun, right? And, he, and he's locking himself in a room with 10 and, get, and experimenting with feedback. You got the kinks who are slicing up their speakers yeah. to create really cool sounds. You've got... Um, well, it was really, I mean, yeah. the late 60s, I mean, the guys that really turned it around, obviously Hendrix. Right. But then you have like Clapton, Beck, and right. Page, those the three Yardbirds guys. Yeah. I mean, all of them on their own were just like, just ridiculous, you know, with the stuff they were coming out with. Right. Um, so yeah, I mean, it was it was those three guys and Hendrix that really like pushed the movement forward. So let, so let's and yeah, I mean, beyond agreed. So let's let's talk about you. So you're 11, 12 years old. I can't even remember. Probably seventh or eighth grade, something like that. Where that and would. And then this happened. <laughs> Which is I, I haven't played anything yet. Yeah. So. Which is exactly why I don't feel qualified to be holding a guitar in front of you, but yes. So you're like, I keep doing that throughout the show. So 
10, I've 11 been, years old. I've been old. encouraged to do so, so I'm going By to me, it. yeah, right. So, so you're 10, 11 years old. Is the guitar starting to speak to you yet, or is it more you just taking lessons? Like, you know, when, when is it becoming sort get, of pushed into your soul? Um, yeah, I took lessons for like three years, but it wasn't, I didn't have rock teachers. Right. You know, so I'm sitting there with a Mel Bay book. Anybody who doesn't know, Mel Bay is like the, you know, yep. the beginning yeah. uh, book for all you know, people learning how to read. And it was just stuff straight out of that. And I just wanted to play rock. And so, I, didn't, I didn't know how to get there. Where were you getting lessons from? Um, just like local guys. So great teachers. Bernadine Music in Matawan. Do you ever go there for uh, with No, because I grew up in West Orange. Oh, okay. I know you were in Matawan for some time, but okay. So ultimately, I mean, it was, I, I stumbled upon it among, um, myself. Um, when I got my first electric guitar, which was what? It was like a, I don't know, it was like some shitty knockoff. Zim, it was a Zimgar, Z-I-M-G-A-R. Oh, I and never heard of that. M one yeah. of my brothers and I used to kid that it was, you know, built by some master luthier in the Italian Alps. And like, we had this thing that nobody knew was worth like $10,000. And you, you joke about it, but. Right, right. I got that thing. I got an electroharmonics muff fuzz, little, Yep, uh, yep, yep, yep. It had a, had a plug, a male plug that just stuck out from it, and I plugged it into my stereo. Okay. That's what we did back then. Right. And a right. mic input, and then you plug the guitar into it. And as soon as I wait, wait, I'm going to cut you off. Did did you mess with your stereo to create? So you got fuzz no. out of your stereo? No. No, but I used the distortion device. You'd plug that in, and all of a sudden, you know, right. you went from an acoustic guitar to this. And that's when the shit really started right, to come because, together. Because I was like, oh my God, this is what I've been looking for. Yes, the freedom of fuzz. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, that, and it started to take off from there. And I started to figure out rock stuff off records. And uh, honestly, the, the guy that really unlocked rock guitar playing for me was Ace Frehley. Really? The first Kiss Alive album. Because he was doing what all, like Jimmy Page was doing, but he was doing it slow enough for a kid to pick it off. Oh, that's interesting. So all the, the patterns, like, you know, anybody that plays guitar knows that pentatonic scales just go up in patterns up the neck. Right. Like this being the... The predominant one. Right. And Ace really... And it was slow enough, and sooner or later you're going to stumble on it, and you go, wow, that's just a fingering pattern that sits right. right here on the neck. And then from here you go. Then you go up here, Jimmy Page. So and once you start linking up those boxes, and you go like, now I know how to do that, because it sits right in this little spot. Right. Then it starts cascading and it just starts coming together really fast. Where, yeah. was, where was your rhythm guitar playing through this? Were you immediately gravitating toward lead guitar as opposed to rhythm? Yeah, well, rhythm guitar just it wasn't hard, you know? You right. just, whatever. That was obvious, you know, after a while it became like right. you know, the power chord, the root fifth root. Most rock then was built entirely. One, four, five. Was right. built entirely on that. Right, right, right. So, so that so in terms of your growth as a young guitar player, it was not. It, you were immediately attracted to the lead. lead. You, you kind of yeah. saw it almost mathematically. It right? was the lead that really, like you know, that struck, and said, "I said I wanted to do it. because that's where really all the expression is coming from, the bends and the feedback and right. Like, wow. Now, where were you socially? So let's let's put you at like 12, 13 years old. Think of the high school scene. Where would you put yourself in the various social groups? I was a pothead, you know, okay. not really running, not really chasing girls, you know, smoking weed and holding up my bedroom. Right, right. Playing guitar. Right. And that's spent a lot of time doing that. So. And where did that put you in terms of like, like did guitar play any role in how you viewed the social strata in your high school or was it independent of that? It was, it was not even really a factor. It was. I mean, tour, in, like. By junior and senior year, I think I played a couple high school dances and people started to go like, oh, what's going on there with him? Right, Holy right, right. Shit, I never even knew. But that's not what it attracted you. It, no, it, no, it was strictly, it wasn't, I want to be a rock star. It was like, I want to play guitar, man. And that's, that's like, if I think of my little journey where I'm just an, you know, a part-time little bit of guitar player, mine was more social. 
and there's, I enjoy the music, but it wasn't as musically pure as yours. So your, your attraction to the music was actually the music, not social acceptance or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, absolutely. I didn't give a shit about all that other stuff. And, that, and Honestly, that, that's, yeah. that's a healthy, in my view anyway, that's, that's a healthier attraction well, it's to gonna music. Well, it's going to keep your head much more focused on the music than the girls and the partying and everything, right. which will all come later. But Once the, and you learn how to play. Well, it's like if you if you have a conversation with a, a billionaire or a multimillionaire, they'll tell you that they had an attraction to the business they built, and the money came second. Exactly, so there was secondary. Do to what that. you love and the money will follow is the is the saying. Right, and for you, not always true, but right, right, but but right, exactly. But for you, the 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 musical progression came because your or, or the social acceptance came because your primary purpose was musical right and, and all that didn't happen until i started playing in a bar band okay and that's where i was like wow you know like holy crap there's it, this whole other side with you know right partying and girls and all that so when you're so let's put you in like junior year in high school uh, are you in bands yet? Are you starting to play out? Oh yeah, I started playing in bands when I was fourteen. Okay, so what? Remember the, the names of your yeah, bands? Yeah, yeah, and I didn't name this band. It was a stupid name. The band was Lush, L-U-S-H. Somebody else came up with it, and they were like, "Yeah," and I'm like, "That's stupid." It's good and bad at the same time. Uh, it's dumb. It's and cheesy. It, but we were stuck with it, so. Yeah, and was that a cover band? Any originals yeah, it was, floating it, around? No, it was it was all covers. So you're playing all 70s, early 80s. Yeah, rock that, that band. We did a bunch of Kiss, a bunch of Aerosmith, uh, a little bit of Rush. You know. Okay. We think we did like eight Kiss songs. Really? It was very Kiss centric. Yeah. So I don't forget that's when Kiss Alive, the first one, was out. And I remember that very well. Took the world by storm. It did. And it's interesting because I, I you know, I'm a kid who was grad or was gravitating towards the Who, the Clash, bands like that. I rejected Kiss back then, and we're almost the same exact age. So it's interesting because you're appreciating what Ace is doing on guitar. Not it, only the guitar playing, but if you strip away all the makeup and, and, and the fireworks and everything, those are great songs. They're, they're well-written. They're, they're so catchy and they're kick-ass hard rock. I mean, yeah. like what kid is not going to like that? No, you're right. And I, I was so anti-Kiss because I felt like they were inauthentic in my stupid eighth grade and ninth grade Which mind. is so funny because it's, it's so far from the truth if you strip everything away and listen yeah. to the songs. They're, they're, they're great awesome. songs. We did, um, one of my bands did Rock and Roll All Night. It was one of my favorite songs to play. It's a great song. Ad nauseum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but for, you know, for a 19-year-old kid playing in college, it worked. Yeah. And, no, I don't know how to play it now, but you know, I, I sort of vaguely remember it. But it, the crowd loved, oh, you're about, yeah. The D. Yeah, as simple as you can get. Right, right. And, and you're right, they're great songs. And if, if you strip away the brilliant marketing of that band, underneath genius. that, genius, they had great vocals and great songs. Yeah. It's true, I never thought of it that Paul way. Paul Stanley, awesome, awesome singer. Yeah. What a great rock voice. Oh, perfect. And then Gene Simmons is a brilliant marketer. Yeah. Beyond brilliant, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's pretty cool. So you're in 11th grade, you're doing that. Senior year. Senior year is when I uh, joined Profit and actually started playing with them. So they were a pre-existent band. Um, Profit was like the the guys that put it together uh, tried a couple times. Okay. And it finally like when I joined the band, you know, we they they it was it, Scott the keyboard the Scott the bass player and Joe the keyboard player um, were the nucleus. Okay. And I, then I joined and they got a, a solid singer and drummer and so then we were able to get out and play. A one guitar band. Yeah. So you had a lot of responsibility in that band. Yeah, but you know, we did a lot of a lot of the covers we did were way above my head when we started. We were doing Kansas okay. and Yes. Oh, really? Yeah, and like I'd never played any of that. I was like a I was a Kiss and um, Aerosmith guy. So, what kind of Yes songs were you doing back then? Heart of the Sunrise. Oh, really? Uh, uh, Roundabout, um, Siberian Katru. I mean, really? stuff that was way over my head. A roundabout, we all learned. I, you know, we all learned the uh, Kozita. Yeah. That's, that's, that's about as far as I got with it. Yeah, that was a, but, that was a high school staple. Yeah, that well, riff. Uh, yeah, we all learned that one. But so, what other stuff did you do from Yes? Um, Siberian Katru is not an easy song. Yeah, I think that's. Uh, yep. Is that one right? Uh, yep. Yep. Screw the rest of it. And up then Heart of the Sunrise. I yeah. used to try. I could never do that.
and I don't know how we did it, but we used to go up, we used to go on stage, and we, we, we partied hard, that band. We were, like, notorious for being one of the hardest partying bands. Oh, really? On the and we get up and we play that kind of stuff. I still don't know how we did it. Well, you know what's funny? Heart of the Sunrise is sort of YYZ-ish. Yeah. On some level. And you guys pulled it off, like, I mean, I can tell you play it well, but the whole band was tight with that? Yeah. That's you a had hard to be tight. Song. We were like, yeah, if you, st that band was very, you know, if you didn't pull your weight, you were out. <laughs> right, right. So it was, yeah. And you're it, doing that alone. There's no one playing rhythm behind you. So you've got, I mean, you have a keyboard player to help you a little bit filling the sound. Yeah, but a lot of the stuff is keyboard centric. So a lot of true. times I, it was me that was taking the backseat. But then we did, we did hard rock too. We did uh, Van Halen. We did Scorpions. I mean, it was, it was hard rock and progressive rock. Okay. And we just mix them up all night. And that's really ambitious. And that's good training for when eventually you're going to progress into writing your own stuff, mm -hmm. I would think. So that's senior year. What happens after you graduate from high school? Graduate, I just went on full-time with that band, started playing five, six nights a week. Oh, really? Now, yeah. what areas geographically? All over Jersey, Staten Island, a little bit in upstate New York, a little bit in Pennsylvania. Um, you know, New York metro area, Brooklyn, Queens. That's a big deal. Yeah, it was. It was yeah. a big deal back then. And then when the, the drinking age went from 19 to 21, I want to say it was 83 or 84, the whole scene just took a shit. Done. Yeah. Because it was a thriving club scene. Well, we, you and I are the, you're, and actually, you survived it in New Jersey. You're yeah. just old enough. I, it kept running away from me as oh. I would go from 18 to 19, 19 to 20. If you remember, they kept raising it one year at a time. And I kept looking and it wasn't there yeah, for Yeah, it went eight to, from 18 to 19 and then 19 to 21. Right. So that was killing the bar scene for you guys. Yeah. At least it, harming it. It destroyed it. But at, th at that point, we were getting ready to run off and do our first record. So, so how did you segue? So you're learning. I, I had a great conversation with someone today about cooking, of all things. And I love to cook, except I don't like to follow recipes. And I, and I really believe that I'm not as good a cook as I would have been if I learned other people's recipes. And that was the same way I approached guitar. So you did the right thing, so you're learning from the people who were really good at it. So by the time you're ready to start writing, you, you, you've learned from the masters because you've performed their, their, their songs. Yeah, that's true. And sp speaking of writing, um, I was a writer with profit, but I wasn't the primary writer. The okay. primary writer was Scott Metaxas, great, amazing songwriter. And sometimes I'd bring in an, a, a chorus or something like that, but and we'd finish them together, but he was a guy that could walk in with a whole song. Okay. A great song, too. So when you did your shows with Prophet in the, let's say, let me bring you to senior year in high school. I'm going somewhere else with that songwriting thing, but let's yeah, follow your I wanna, I definitely want to explore that. And one of the great things about the show is we have the time to do it. Excellent. Uh, but so when you're a senior, is your show all covers or are you throwing in a few originals? No, there was no originals for a couple of years. Okay, so, so if we fast forward just a little bit, when did Profit start playing originals? 83-ish. Okay. Say. And you're so, at 81 from high school? Yeah. Okay. All right. So, so how, how would you mix that in with the crowd? Because, you know, the crowd wants to hear the covers, I would think. And you have to figure out a way to, to allow them to enjoy. No, you just play them. And how would the crowd react? They liked it. Well, that's because, it, you know, we were going we to step out there and play something we didn't think was pretty good, you know? Right, right. I but, mean, obviously, songwriting evolves. You get better as you do yeah. it. Um, but, you know, the first stuff, it was decent. You know, okay. it was good enough. We didn't do a whole lot of them, so it, never, it was never an issue. Right. And then, so you would put maybe, I don't know, in, in two sets over the course of a night, five, six originals? No, something. not that many. Oh, really? Yeah. So you would say... It wasn't, it wasn't a big thing when we were a cover band. Okay. We weren't really, like, we went from being a cover band that did an original here and there, okay. went and did our record, and then we just stepped out. We never did covers again. All right, so let's, let's, let's fast forward a little bit further. So when and how did you segue from being a cover band uh, to being an original band? You leave the club circuit to go make a record, and when you come back, you're not doing covers anymore. Wow. So were you scared when you did that? No. That's great. No, because you, it's everybody's goal is to make a record. But were you nervous as to whether or not the public would accept you? Because, it, you know. No. Okay. No, because we weren't going back to our former life as it was a cover a brand band. New, well, that, but, so, and, and we yeah. weren't really playing because you can't just be original band and just go back to playing your, you know, your schedule in the clubs. Yeah. Because now you, you have a handful of songs. 
Right, but you're walk, walking out of a safe place where you can go to Club N.A. or Fountain Casino. This and is my safe space right here. Right, right. <laughs> I'll, I'll take it. Uh, <laughs> so, so you're walking out of your safe place. I know this is safe here, but we're, we're, we're still 30 years ago right now, right? Ish. So, so you're going out from a place where you know that if you play, I don't know, g give me a song that was a popular song cover that is. Um, I hear what you're saying, but yeah. it's not. It's, it wasn't like that. Okay. It wasn't like that because the, first of all, the club scene was dead anyway because the drinking okay. age changed. So there was no thing to go back to really. So that, did that make it easier to make the? Or you would have made the transition anyway. Yeah, we, it was not a thing. Like we didn't want to be a cover band anymore. Okay. And, and I just saw online someone was talking about Zep. They were they were critical of. of first they were talking on Facebook. There was a Pete Townsend interview. Then they were talking about Zep. A lot of those bands started with covers too. Everybody starts with covers. Right. So Nobody that, steps out and says, well, I, I mean, some people maybe do that now, but when, when I was coming up, there was no, like, we're going to play out and we're just doing originals. So, so this I was, mean, yeah, yeah, I guess maybe like in, in CBGBs, the punk bands and stuff, they were all doing that. But right, right. I mean, in, in the general rock scene, everybody, you know, you come out of high school, you're playing dances and you could become a cover band. And, and so this, from there. So you always saw this as a very, and it makes sense, a very natural progression. We'll, we'll sort of you know, get our act together, literally and metaphorically, right? Yeah, because you're not going to, I mean, how far are you going to go as a cover band? Right, right, okay. So then, so sometime, what, like late 80s is when you started switching from cover to originals? Well, we came, We did our first record in 85, and okay. we came back, and there was really no scene. There was no, there was no tour for us. So my bass player and I took a little diversion and started a, a different cover band just to keep busy, but that's a whole other... That was the Edgar Casey band. That's a rabbit hole that we can go down and never well, come out of. I, I, I have to start a little bit. I love Edgar Casey. I've been to the Edgar Casey Museum. Are you an Edgar Casey fan? I, I, I'm very aware of who Edgar Casey was. Yeah. But the, the reason that we chose to name the band that is because we were a prophet and then we came home and. That makes sense. Prophet yeah. was sleeping. Edgar Casey, known as the Sleeping Prophet. Correct. Right. So right. It right. Just, it was a goof. You know, it was like a little. I love that. Yeah. But I, I went on my YouTube journey for you. I thought, oh, I have to chat with him about Edgar Casey because I've read many of his books. Yeah. I mean, well, Great. he was he was an amazing healer. He would go into trances. He would meet with people. And for anyone who doesn't know who Edgar Casey was, he was mostly known as a healer. He would meet with people that had ailments that the medical community couldn't figure out, and he would go into a trance and you know, talk, he would, t well, actually he would talk to the patient and right. then put himself into a trance. Right. And when he would come out of it, he would have these crazy herbal and natural remedies that would more often than not help, greatly help the patient. And he's the most, crazy. the most highly documented, the most well-documented psychic in history. Yeah. And he's got a museum at Virginia Beach. Yeah. Amazing, yeah. amazing yeah. guy. All right. An so, amazing story. So I will pull us back from that rabbit trail. So... So, so now with Profit, you're doing the, ori the originals, right? Not with the Edgar Casey band. Yeah. Or, okay. With Profit. And right. Profit wasn't playing that much. We do a show here and there. All and right. Edgar Casey just kind of took on a life of its own because if you're not, if you're not getting tours playing originals, you you're gigs. sitting around on your ass. You're right, right. So you're doing gigs with Edgar Casey. You're, you're starting to let your creative juices flow through Profit now, which yeah. is, is a different entity than it was just a few years earlier. Mm -hmm. now, what was your songwriting? responsibility and opportunity with profit in the early days whatever i wanted it to be really you know, i would just you know come up with ideas but songwriting that the me writing stuff then is entirely different than what became of me current day writing okay. songs this is a what i'm doing now is like what i'm doing now i figure I, I feel like i figured out like this is how you write a song. Back then, I was a guitar player writing guitar parts and trying to turn them into songs, okay. as many guitar players do. That's what we, as guitar players, do. Right. We come up with the riff. Yeah. You're like, and yeah, that's... I got a song idea. That's just that's a riff. That's not really a song idea. You'll you'll create a song around that. around the riff. Yeah, but the thing is, the when you conceived it, the riff was the primary part. Right. It's and you added the most important parts, which are like the chorus and the vocal melody and the lyrics and everything like that, as a second thought to your riff. Right. That's a guitar player thing. Right. And it, and it's it's an inorganic way to express a feeling or an emotion. And listen, and it, it's fine. 
Right. But that's the way I would write back then. Now when I write, it's like, it's a vocal melody over chord changes. It's a, it's a, it's a concept idea. I'll sit down, pick up a guitar and, you know, just sing a couple lines. That's really, to me, songwriting. Well, you know, the other thing is, you know, like, on some level, maybe you need life to kick you in the ass a little while so you can And then there's that. Say. Yeah. Which definitely, yeah, I've been through a, a lot, as a lot of people have. Right. And it was when I cleared all that, that song ideas started to come to me again. But they came entirely differently, as I just described. Right. Not as guitar riffs. So I think what I want to do right now is I want to fast forward us a little bit because I want to have enough time to talk about your current um, songwriting. So how many years were you with Prophet where you guys, you did, I think, four albums, maybe? We did three, um, but after the second one, the it just became like a diaspora, you know what I mean? Like, uh, 88, we released Cycle of the Moon, which was we were still like full steam. We were uh, being managed by a guy named Noel Monk, who managed Van Halen. Okay. We just called him up one day. Really? He said, hey, we want you to hear our stuff. And he was like, well, send it to me. And he called us back and said, I love, I love what you're doing. Why don't you come out to L.A.? And we did. And we made a record with him. He was great. Okay. Great. Super nice guy. But again, we were fighting a losing battle because that was 88 and it was hair metal. Okay. You know, we, anything with keyboards was not considered heavy enough. Right, right. So we struggled with that. Um, and in 91, we released another record just kind of on our own called Recycled. Um, Added Dave DiPietro, a good friend of mine, on guitar. Okay. Um, what was his role musically? Rhythm, fellow lead guitar? Fellow lead. Okay. He's an insanely good guitar player. Ironically, I'm playing with him again. He's back in my live band now for the shows I'm doing my own stuff now. Okay. Full circle. Um, That's really cool. So, yeah, we, we did that record, and just, like, it was getting to the point where you, everyone could feel everything just, the steam was running out. And you've already got well over a decade under your belts at that point. Yeah, that was about a decade at that point. Okay. So okay. yeah, after I, I I really like Recycled because it's a it's a guitar record and there's a lot of trading off and I like the songs, but again, you know, no muscle behind it, so it wasn't going anywhere. But what does that mean? No muscle behind it. Uh, nobody in the industry behind you. Okay. Okay. So you it. don't mean artistically no. no muscle. You mean marketing support wise. Management label. Yeah. Okay. So what what was it like? say early 90s what was sort of the template on how you would try to achieve success let's you put out a great album there, there you, all the elements of the songs that you want and need are there um, what did you need for management and promotion and, and maybe what didn't, what didn't you get or maybe wasn't what wasn't out there so the early 90s don't forget is when uh, Nirvana and Pearl Jam right so the whole yeah. grunge thing is kicking so, in yeah. yeah so at that point rock is dead like the who said yeah. You know, yeah. our version of rock right. was dead. That was the death knell. Nobody gave a shit about guitar playing anymore. They really, and they you still just don't. Yeah, yeah. Banged. I mean, that's the way Kurt Cobain played. Great singer, great songwriter. But not a strong Amazing, guitar player. But not a guitar player, and yeah. neither was Pearl Jam. So guitar playing yeah. no longer mattered. And I guess it was around, around 93 that I was just like not feeling it at all okay. for music at all. Really? Anymore. Yeah. And that's when I started gravitating down a whole other rabbit hole, which was getting my captain's license, starting a charter fishing business, and that became my thing. Like the sea, being at sea, became the love. Well, and, and, and I did that, that for a long time. That's an artistic expression, uh, you know, on some level. I just like to fish. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, you're out there, yeah. you're, you're hunting. Every day is what you're doing. Right. Do you and still it, do that? Uh, not as a business, but I, I have a small boat, and I just yeah, I'm, for for joy. It's hard to get me off of it. Let's right, put it right, that right, way, right, to, right, to right. To my life's responsibilities. Right. So then, so you've got this journey. So what years are you primarily? You know, let's say what what years were you vocationally a fisherman before you segued back into you know being music full time? Um, let me see. Well. I started getting pulled into that in the early 90s. I got my captain's license in 97 and started okay. that business. Right, right. And there was other stuff in during that period of the 90s. I cut my hair and got a real job for a couple of years. Right, right, right. That totally sucked. Ironically, I'm back doing the same thing now, but it, it's all good now. It's, it's fine. Right. Um, you learn a lot when you hit 50. You, you get an appreciation for all sorts of things. Yeah, you sure do. Yeah. So in 97, I was just, I started the, the charter business and uh, I was still 
playing music to support myself. I was teaching, I had a ton of students. Right. I was doing weddings, I was doing acoustic duo gigs, whatever I could do. And uh, building the, the charter boat business. Right. And once the charter boat business got, could stand on its own, I quit the wedding band, I got rid of, I quit teaching, and it was just full-blown charter fishing. Now, did you get rid of any of your equipment, or was it still sort of hanging out in your home? No, it was, you know, I kept my guitars. And would you moment. still play? You know, when you're doing it, would you come home and play? Um, I didn't really, yeah, here and there. You know, I'd still do some cool gigs, and but my, my heart was not in it, was, was not into the creative end of, of music at all. What about the playing? So if you're still playing gigs, it seems like, Part of the fire is still there. Yeah, yeah. Some of the fire was still there, but a lot of the gigs it became more of a chore to go out okay. and play. So you I weren't you weren't in, emotionally getting satisfaction or joy out of it at that point. At some points on stage, like you know, if it was we were cooking, yeah, like, be, like it, moments, you mean, right? Yeah. Okay. Like that would be great, but yeah. just like um, there was, I was detached. Okay. from the creative process at that point. Right. So everything else was just like, ah, I got a gig tonight, but I really don't feel like going. Right, that and you would do thing. it because you had to do it. Yeah, I'd do it, you know, for the money or just because, you know, it was something to do. But in the thick of it, you might get those moments where, where you're in sync with the band and, you're, and those, one of your leads of, is searing through. Of course, because it, that was, playing guitar was what I did my whole life. So, yeah, yeah I mean, there was, I'm not going to say I didn't enjoy it, but, right. you know, it wasn't until I, um, had my like reawakening to creativity, so to speak, again. Yeah. And that happened in like 2014. And once I started like really getting into writing and stuff again, then all the cylinders started firing again. And like I almost like I, I just didn't give a shit about anything else at that point. That's all right. So I want to talk about that. Before we do it, let's talk about our two friends we brought with us. And I'll oh, right jump into that. Yeah. So, so you've got this thing is gorgeous. This beauty here is a 2013. Gibson SG original. Now, the term original was for this model for this year. And it, what it is, it's a, it's a reproduction of the original 1961 SG Les Paul. It's beautiful. I mean, every part of that guitar is beautiful. Yeah, it, it's awesome. I, when I saw it, I fell in love with it. Um, so yeah, this is not a custom shop guitar. It's not a high end. This is like a, a Gibson USA. Okay. It was probably under two grand when it sold new. Right. And uh, a lot of the uh, SG aficionados on all the chat rooms and all that on the interwebs right, right. talk about this 2013 model as being, at that time, was the best knockoff Gibson ever did of the original 61 SG Les Paul. And I just, I love the, uh, the Vibrola. I don't oh, it's use gorgeous. It That's the first wax. thing I noticed. See, I keep yeah. this up here. I don't even touch it. I just like the way it looks. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, it sounds ridiculous. <laughs> And it sounds great. You're playing through an orange. Yeah, right? that little orange is what a great little. Oh, amp. it's great. And you got mother of pearl on the neck, I guess. You got mother of pearl on your vibrato, mother of pearl on, I guess, on your, yeah, on your machines. Uh, I don't know. It, it's it, that's a pretty guitar. Yeah, I love this guitar. So what do, what is your primary primary function for that guitar? Does it go out with you all the time? Uh, not all the time. I got a lot of guitars now, and uh, my my go to is a Les Paul. Okay, and I, I saw online, you're, you're, you might like Fender, but you're a Gibson guy, right? Yeah, I love Fenders, but okay. yeah, I'm a Gibson guy. Yeah. I have two Tellys and two Strats, and I, I love them. What do you like better, the Telly or the Strat? Tellys. Yeah? Yeah. They have a cooler sound. They have a low-end honk that the Strats don't have. But the bridge has that weird sort of, like, that goes right around the edge. Do you have issues with that, with the way the bridge? You nope. don't care. You don't nope. care. They, it's, 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 every guitar is its own animal. Right, and right. when you pick it up, you have to know that's what you're picking up. Right, and there is some that Tele sound. I mean, I was always a Strat guy, but that Tele sound is really special. It just sort of slices through. Tellys are awesome, and the thing about Tellys that kind of gets lost on a lot of people because they think they're twangy. Yeah, they have a ridiculous thumpy bottom end. Right, uh, like way more than Strat. Yeah, and, and, and that's why pe guys that dig Tellys more than Strats. That's kind of why. Right, right. So, so that guitar, so will you play, you'll play Gibson more than Fender overall by a lot, right? Or no? Yeah, I just like lately, I'm not even really picking up a Fender at a show. 
Okay. I will though, but because now I'm just kind of getting feet, my feet wet with a full band playing my own stuff live again. Right. So right. I want to be as comfortable as possible. So it's generally just a Les Paul. Okay. And then this thing, I, I love this. I can't put it down. That's why we, partly because you suggested it and partly because I can't put it down. This is a Gibson. Yeah, that's a Gibson songwriter. The songwriter is the model, even though for some reason it says studio on the, uh, right. <clears throat> on the little thing on the headstock there. Right. Gibson songwriter. Um, a friend of mine went to Nashville a few years ago and he came back up and did a couple of gigs. He goes, I asked him how it was. And he said it was great, but I spent every dime that I made playing live on this guitar. And he hands it to me and I was like, wow. It had the most compact feel of any oh, yeah. acoustic guitar I've ever picked up. Yeah. It feels like an electric guitar. Like it the does. Neck, it feels it like a plays short itself. scale. So, it when just, the time it's effortless. When the time came, I got one of my own and I just adore that. Thing. It's beautiful. And it's electric. Yeah. So you well, got a pickup in it. Most yeah, of these days, most I guess. Are these days. Okay. And it's got look at the beautiful woodwork on the back. You got yeah. somebody some guy playing around inside here. I could hear that, but you said it's not a pick, right? No, it's it's broken off ball end of a string, I think. Oh, okay. That that's always gonna be the case. It's got beautiful machine heads on this is really it's a very playable, easy guitar. Yeah, I love it. No, it's great. So uh, I want to talk a little bit about now. So from 2014 to the present, you're writing again. How does that feel? It's the greatest feeling on the planet, I have to tell you. Yeah. The only thing I love as much as writing songs now is my kid. Honestly, right. those two things. I mean, it's, it's her or when a song comes together. Those are the two right. things that really just, you know, light my fire. But uh, it, it's the greatest thing. I, I fi find it hard to find words to talk about right. how important it is to me now, but it's just become my whole world, like what I care about is writing songs and recording songs and going out and playing them in front of people and getting reactions and having people say, wow. Like it's so much more about songs now than guitar playing. The guitar playing is just the icing that goes on right, afterwards. Right. So talk to me about perspective, you know, like, Life experience, I, I would think, gives you an artistic ability to look at life and create something that you couldn't have created in your 20s because you wouldn't have that perspective. That's absolutely correct. Um, without getting into the gory details, I had a lot of tough years. And when, when I got free of all that and I was really like living a peaceful life for probably a year and a half, okay. that's when the song idea started to come. Right. Like I was saying before, it wasn't a guitar riff. It was a song idea. It was like about something, right, you right. know, a chorus and a hook and building the song around that instead of a guitar riff. And that's still, I just took that and that's the way I write now. So what's your process? If there is one, will, will you get hit with the melody, the lyrics? What, what hits you first if there is something consistent about that? It, it kind of is consistent. Um, a lot of what's been happening lately is I'll just wake up with uh, like a lyric idea hook over a couple chord changes, like literally just wake out of a sleep with it. Right, right, right. And if I don't go downstairs and grab the guitar and then go back to sleep, it's going to be lost. So I yeah. peel myself out of bed, you know, put my phone on record and put it down. Um, sometimes you could just, it just, the ideas just come to me when I'm doing nothing. Right. When I'm doing some mindless thing like, you know, out for a run or or making dinner, or like, wow, well, where did that, it literally comes out of nowhere. I, th I think it comes when your mind is at rest. It does. You know, and then, you know, like it, it, I said it a few minutes ago, it, it, if life is kicking you in the ass for a while and you sort of find out, thankfully, luckily, on the other side of life kicking you in the ass, you could sort of process it and you could bring more to the table. Yeah, a lot, a, a lot of what came out of me um, was, you know, songs about those tougher times. times. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and there's, some, you know, like I've heard, it's funny, when I was in my 30s, I, you know, I'm a lawyer by day, you know, and I remember the head of our old firm used to talk about the, the beauty of, the, of one's 50s, you know, and, and it, it really does give you perspective because you, you've still got a, 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 a lot of vitality left. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you have perspective, you have some wisdom, you know, and I think it can really be a wellspring of creativity for you if you can look back on those years and say, what did I learn from it? What can I draw from it? Yeah, no doubt. And I, I will tell you that, 
you know, since the, I hate the term living your best life because it's so stupid and corny, but although it's, it's not, but although it's, it's not, I just hate the yeah. way the words are couched. Cor- it is but, corny. Yeah. Yeah. But since I started writing again, since yeah. this came back on me in 2014, it has definitely been the best period of my life ever. You know, what's cool that you can actually point out a specific time and year. You know what I mean? Like, you're not saying, well, you know, over a course of time, you know, I started writing. No, no it, it, happened, it yeah. happened like the stuff started coming on out of the blue fairly quickly. Right. Oddly. I guess it was just, you know, shit inside got peaceful enough to allow whatever to right. start entering. Now, was there a, a period? The dragon. This is great. I mean, was there a period of time when you weren't writing or otherwise engaged in sort of artistic creativity? Yeah. Like a decade-ish? Like 20 plus years. So, so I've always had a theory that if you look at some of the most prolific songwriters, I think they sort of blow it after a certain, you know, they sort of use themselves up. I don't want to use a too colloquial expression. But if you've got this sort of quiescent period of say 10, 15, 20 years, all this life experience is building up inside you. And then what's cool for you or someone in your shoes is that when it finds its way, that's what it is, <laughs> you're right. <laughs> um, it finds its way through you to, with an outlet where there's a higher level of wisdom than you know what Ray Davies is writing when he's 19, let's say. Yeah. Yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, talking about bands, you know, running the course of their creativity, I mean, how many bands did you love the first two albums and afterwards it was just like, they, they, they blow it. I mean, they, it's not that they blow it, they use it up. Yeah, you, you, there is definitely a finite amount. Yeah. And it's generally, you know, bands early in their career, artists earlier in their career. There's a whole different, there's an entirely different scene now. It's, it's not a scene, but it's a scene. Like, you know, nobody makes money selling records anymore. So the whole, right. you know, I have a hit record. I don't know, maybe in pop. That still holds true with like Jennifer Lopez and all that kind of stuff. But as far as like people that are making like quality music, bands are writing their own stuff. They're putting it out on their own and they're going on the road and they're right. staying on the road because that's the only way they can make money. Right. They make money playing gigs and through merchandise. Merchandise is huge. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. So the ability to just do what you want musically, there's no reins anymore. You don't have to fit... You don't have to do what the record company thinks you should do, what your manager thinks you should do. You're creating. It's pure. It's pure creativity. Right. And when you're creating from the heart like that, and you get it out in front of people, people are going to know it. They're going to, and they're going to gravitate to you because it's it's funny. In this fucked up world we live in, there are some good things. Like you're on a show right now that is a perfect example of that. Yeah. You know, we came up with the idea, and then we work with you know Riverview Studios and all that. And we've decided we want a long show. We don't want like a little shitty, like 10 minute interview. Where and you, you can do yeah. it because who gives yeah. a shit? You're not kowtowing yeah. to corporate sponsors. No. You know what I mean? No. So that's what I'm doing now. I'm writing songs. Yeah. I'm, I'm not writing with a partner. When I go and record them, I, I have a, a fabulous, let me give him a plug, Steve Diacutis. He owns Sta- Sound Say that Spa. slowly, Steve. Steve Diacutis. Diacutis. Yeah, he owns okay. Sound Spa Recording in Edison. Okay. And I love working with him. Just he and I will co-produce, and I just do what I want. And I go out and I, I play them, and it's just all. I'm not doing it for any gain other than just to. It's because it makes me happy. You're doing it because it's an authentic expression of what you're feeling, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's super cool. I'm feeling and like my underwear's a little tight right now. I, I was about to say that. <laughs> yeah. So, so you played a great opening song for us, and, and, and just to give you a sense of things, we got just a few minutes left in the show. Um, loved that opening song. Thank you very much. I, I loved your chord progression. Gave, I felt a little Pete Townsend in floating around in there. I'm a Who, I'm a Who fanatic, but it, your vocals were great. Um, you got so much other stuff. You told me before we started, you have just zillions of songs. Yeah, I, I, they're, they're building up. I really, really need to get back in the studio right now and do another record. I just, I, it's, it's, it's a cost of fortune, and I don't have the time, you know, right. but a lot of other life keeps Money getting, and time, right? Yeah, money and time. The life keeps getting yeah. in the way, but I'll, I'll get there one yeah. way or another. And, I mean, and so what do you, so like with that, what's the name of that song, by the way? The song is called Into Your Own, and like I was saying before, it's a perfect example of, the, the, the message of that song is that um, I'm out of something that sucked and life is so much better now. 
And there, I have quite a few songs that preach that message. I've kind of got a lot of that out of my system at this point. Right. And I'm branching off into other weirder well, topics. Well, the weird thing, another cheesy overused term that I use all the time is gratitude. You know, and, yeah. and there's a, you know, the funny thing is, as cheesy and overused as the word is, there's, there's a reason, you know? Yeah. You, you no. sort of, you, you find yourself past a hurdle, right? Yeah. And, and you could be filled with gratitude and you could have appreciation for where you are now. And, oh, I, I do. I am and I do. Trust right. me. Every day I get up, I'm just happy to be alive, man. Right, right. Because you could have been in a really bad place, but you're in a great place. Yeah. Well, yeah. I was, that. yeah. G give me a few bars of something else uh, that you've come up with of late. Uh, let me see. Just, let me narrow it down. Figures I'm on the spot. I can't think right. of There's like 10 yeah. million songs. Yeah. Um. That's good enough. I love that chord progression. But you've got so many of these great tunes. How, how many songs do you have? If, if I were to say to you, here's a million dollars in the studio, how many songs are you ready to record right now? Uh, over 20. Wow. That's crazy. And, and I think, consistent with my theory that I've had for some time, is that if you have a quiescent period where you're, you're living your life but not necessarily sort of blowing through whatever amount of creative juice the universe gives you, there's a lot left. And you've got that right now, which is really cool. I guess. I don't know. I don't know what I've got. I just, I don't analyze it. I just let it come to me and I, right. I, I finish it. You know what I mean? And, and, and what I love about this, you know, we're, again, we're the same exact age, is you've got so much left in you because you, you know, you've got 20 years. No, you do, you do. Because you've got these 20 years where you're living your life and it's informing your brain, it's informing your creativity, right? And, and now you're suddenly, you know, 2014, you've got this like literally, like it's a stop, like from here, no, and then from here, yes. Pretty so much. You, you know, and, and so you're waking up and hearing metaphorically and literally all these great songs that are coming out. I think that's beautiful. Yeah, they're coming from somewhere. I don't know really. And like a lot, lot of writers will tell you this. Where do, you, where do your ideas come from? Where do they come from? We don't really know where they come from. Right. It's subconscious. Uh, um, Tony Joe White, who is a great, like this southern swampy guitar player, singer, writer, kind of had his own thing. It's such a cool guy. And he said that um, if you're writing songs for any reason other than you know, to be commercially successful, you're not, they're, they're being given to you. You're just channeling them out. That's beautiful. I, I, I love that thought and I always feel like- It's true though. Yeah, there's like, you know, we're, we're literally, this is a perfect way to end. So I feel like at some point there's a muse that sits on your shoulder and says, I'm gonna give you this, you know? And, and that's what you're getting. So I wanna thank you. This, is, this has been a wonderful hour. Believe it or not, we've just burned through 60 minutes. Amazing, and I hardly played guitar. <laughs> you, played a, you, you played some great guitar. Uh, I wanna thank all of our listeners. Don't forget, subscribe, visit our YouTube channel, check us out on um, iTunes, and keep in, on the Facebook page because we're going to be posting more information about future shows. Go to riverviewstudios.com, you'll learn a lot, and guitartales.com. And I'm getting a sign from our cameraman, he wants you to play a little more for our outro. Dude, great fucking show. Thanks, brother. That was a great show.